Hello, homeschool friends, and welcome to this episode of the Homeschool High School Podcast from sevensistershomeschool.com and brought to you by the Ultimate Homeschool Podcast Network. I'm Sabrina, and I'm here today by myself talking about Shakespeare and how you can include Shakespeare in your high school plans for your homeschool teen and not feel intimidated about it and not get a lot of grumpy backlash from your teen about it because it won't be intimidating or too much for the student either. A lot of people are put off by the thought of teaching Shakespeare in their homeschools. And yet a lot of people feel like I really should include Shakespeare in my homeschool. And of course, I'm of the opinion that you should, because I have written study guides to go along with several of Shakespeare's plays. And so clearly, I think that there's value in it. But a lot of people who are not fans of Shakespeare themselves still feel like it's probably important. I know that I did some Shakespeare when I was in high school, and so it seems like a thing, like a thing that you should do. Now, I could spend some good old time talking about, you know, why I think that it is good and um, and important, and I'm gonna I'm gonna leave that to a really small nugget today. Okay, in fact, um, there are a couple of other episodes on the Homeschool High School podcast where Vicky and I have dug in depth into that question and talked about why it is so good and so important. But let me give you the very brief version. It is important because Shakespeare told good stories and he told them well. He created fantastic characters who had traits and relationships and struggles and strengths and dreams, the kind that we have in real life. Maybe the plots were not exactly like what happens in our real lives, but the characters were like real people. The heroes were flawed and the villains had good qualities too. The people with challenges in front of them were both inspired and brave and courageous and hardworking as they went after those challenges. And they were afraid and tired and worn down and frustrated and lonely. All of that real human experience shows up in Shakespeare's stories. The stories are amazing. The characters are amazing. The relationships are amazing. The ideas that he explores, they're universal. They're timeless. The language is what gets in the way. The Elizabethan English is what gets us tied up to where we feel like, ugh, Shakespeare sounds like work. Well, I would say that Shakespeare can be work if you turn it into work. So if you take one of his plays and you sit in a musty corner of a library somewhere and you study it really, really hard and you try to take your contemporary American mind and dig into the finer points, uh, nuances of uh, Elizabethan English. And yeah, that's going to be work. That doesn't sound like fun to me at all. But um, if instead you start from the understanding that Shakespeare wrote these to be entertainment, he wrote these to be entertainment for the common man. This was like writing for TV, like a Netflix original, you know, like that's where we are now. That, that's the kind of stuff that Shakespeare was writing then. 
he knew that these would be captivating. He knew that these would appeal to people with money and people with no money, would appeal to people who were um, born with all kinds of opportunities before them because of their social standing and, and people who were born with no opportunities and were going to have to just create their own opportunities. He knew that they would be exciting and heartbreaking and funny to all different kinds of people because what he was trying to do was write about the human experience. So that's why Shakespeare deserves a place in your homeschool. Okay. It also deserves a space because there is some hard work involved in getting a lot out of it. And that's good for our kids to have to work for something. And especially for our kids who are strong readers, who find reading comprehension easy, who find lit analysis to be a fairly natural experience. It's really good to give them a challenge, but even for our kids who um, are not necessarily struggling readers, but it's not their thing. The reading, writing thing is, is not their sweet spot. It's still accessible to them. So let me give you an easy way to think about how to make Shakespeare accessible in the four years of homeschool high school. All right. First thing is don't overdo it. You don't need to do an entire year's worth of Shakespeare unless you have a kid who is fascinated by Shakespeare and wants to do a whole year's worth of Shakespeare and it's heading into some um, post high school endeavor that that sounds like it would be important to have that on the transcript. Once upon a time in our local community, I was asked to do a Shakespeare class for a fairly large co-op group. And I did it. And one of the things that we learned was that a year was too much for most of the students. I mean, they did it. It's not like any of them died along the way, but they didn't need that much Shakespeare. And um, that was a good, that was a good learning opportunity, you know? After that, when I taught it again in our local community, I would typically do a quarter of Shakespeare as a part of a full year of different types of lit. We did a quarter where we did lots of essays. We read lots of essays and we did a quarter where we read and analyzed famous speeches and persuasive writing. And I can't remember what else we did for the fourth quarter. But anyway, there are lots of different ways to present Shakespeare and presenting some Shakespeare, but not a ton of it is probably the best way to handle it in high school. We, we did a quarter one year. Uh, I also did a one semester version of it one time, but another way to do it is simply to add one play in to whatever you're doing for literature each year. One play per year that gets you through four of Shakespeare's plays over the course of the four years of high school. And for a lot of students, that's a really sweet number. It, it just fits. There's a, an extra challenge each year. There's also something very, very different from probably the rest of what they're doing in literature that year. So they've got the variety. They've got a little bit of challenge, but it's just for a couple of weeks. It, it doesn't take more than three or four weeks. And that is okay. You can put that in a spot in the year when there's not a whole lot of other demanding stuff going on and they can really dig in and not feel like they're just just dogging to stay on top of that, you know, plug, 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 plugging along. But instead to have a couple of weeks where they put in some different and um, some added effort, and then they feel really, really good about it. And to mix it up, to not do all comedies, to not do all tragedies, to not do all histories. If you don't know this, uh, Shakespeare kind of falls into those three categories, but they don't exactly mean what we think that they mean. So um, the histories are histories. They are plays that are about real historical figures, and they take some liberties, certainly, with the characters, but they are based in 
facts and events, and um, they are Shakespeare's dramatic representation of those facts and those events. But there's, there's a whole lot of research that went into them, you know? Then you have the comedies and you have the tragedies, and that's what most people are most familiar with. A lot of folks have never even read or seen one of the histories. So that might even have been a surprise to you that there is such a thing. But yes, there's comedies, tragedies, and there's histories. The tragedies are tragedies. The comedies are not exactly comedies. Here's why. So Aristotle, way back in the day, like 2000 years before Shakespeare was writing, he um, wrote a book called Poetics, and it included in it all sorts of guidelines for good writing and good storytelling. And in there, he had rules that he had come up with himself and had drawn from the accepted best practices of the time about playwriting. And so one of the rules in there, and not a rule, but definitions sort of, was that a comedy is a play in which everything turns out as it should. The audience feels like, ah, that ended right. The good are rewarded and the evil are punished. That's a comedy. There may or may not be anything particularly hilarious about it. So it's not like a sitcom on TV. It's not like a rom-com at the theater. A comedy is a story in which it ends the way we feel that it should. We feel like, oh yeah, that was, that was good. Okay. That's the way that should have worked out. And that bad guy, he totally got what he deserved in the end. And those good guys, oh, we thought that they weren't going to get what they, and then they did, they did, they were rewarded. So it feels good. A tragedy is the opposite of that. It is a story in which the good die. (laughs) Yeah. The protagonist has to die in a tragedy. So the main good guy has to die and lots of other good people lose everything. If they don't actually lose their lives, they lose their title. They lose their money. They lose their lands. They lose their family. They lose their dream, whatever. So the good have a terrible outcome and the wicked are not punished as we feel they should be. They might be punished somewhat, some of them, but we come away from it going, oh man, that was just not fair. That was just not right. And we get that righteous uh, indignation going because of the injustice of it all, you know? And there's something oddly cathartic about that. And we know that that's, that's why sometimes we watch things that are very, um, very suspenseful and very, maybe, maybe end on a very dark note or offer commentary in, in a way that is not uplifting and not hopeful, but there's something sort of cathartic about raging at the universe and shaking our fist at the injustice of things and saying, Oh, that was not right. And you know what? Sometimes that's the way life is, right? So there's something to the entertainment piece of the need for both a comedy and a tragedy, but then also the emotional response that goes along with it. And that, that emotional response to the injustice of it all or to the justice of it all, those responses are universal. Those are not time bound. Those were not just for Shakespeare's audiences. Okay. So um, if we mix it up in the four years of high school and we expose our students to some comedy that is not like what they usually think of as comedy. And we help them understand why what we're talking about is a feel-good story. That's comedy. And that was part of what Shakespeare was writing. Some of those comedies that he wrote are hilarious. 
Some of them have scenes that are belly laugh worthy, slapstick, wordplay, all kinds of nonsense, all kinds of, so there's, there's plenty of comedies that do have just hilarious content in them. But that the idea was Shakespeare was writing for audiences and saying they should learn something. That's from the histories. They should feel good. That's the comedies. And they should rage at the injustice in the universe. That's the tragedies. Okay. Think about that for a minute. That's not a bad idea to have about entertainment, right? If we want to be entertained and as humans, we do, we like to be entertained. If we want to be entertained and if someone who is very talented is providing a lot of entertainment for us and they want it to be well-rounded entertainment and they're saying, well, you should learn something and you should feel good and inspired and hopeful and you should be mad and sad that the world is broken. That's pretty cool, right? That's well-rounded entertainment. So introduce your student to a tragedy or two. Introduce your student to a comedy or two. Introduce your student to a history or two. The histories are a little bit tougher for younger audiences, you know, teens. But what will help tremendously is for you to present the primary historical character to your student first. Because the thing to remember is that when Shakespeare wrote a history and it was presented to an audience, this was an audience who knew that person. So it was a part of their cultural um, whatever, you know, like they'd known about this person since they were a child, they had heard stories about them. So it's like for us, um, Ben Franklin in the U S if you grew up in the U S you have some general sense of Ben Franklin. You have some general sense of George Washington. You have some general sense of Harriet Tubman. These are characters that are a part of our history and that are both known and we know what they're known for. Okay, so it's not just that we know their names and we know facts about their lives, but we, we feel like they stand for something in our cultural identity. And so in Shakespeare's histories, he was, he was writing stories about someone who was like that for the audience. This would be someone that they knew not only about, but who they sort of identified with culturally within their country. Um, so if you can make that person known to your student before they get Shakespeare's story about this person in the history that you're reading. That can make it much easier and much more entertaining, much more enjoyable. I take a, a different approach to teaching Shakespeare's plays than some teachers do. And it's different than a lot of the curriculum that I have found over the years, which is why I decided to write my own. So I have found this to work well for most students. There are some kids who do not like doing it in this order but I found them to be few and far between in the classes that I've taught. Um, so what I do is I present the story and the ideas and the characters to the students on my own. Um, in the literature guides that are available from sevensistershomeschool.com for some of Shakespeare's plays, in that section of the study guide, I call this the super fast summary. And it goes through and it tells in short story synopsis version hopefully in a lighthearted and conversational style that kind of keeps it moving for the student, you know, but I say, okay, so here we go. Here are these people. And this is the basic setup and here's what happens. And then bam, this happens. And then this guy that we don't like from the very beginning, we start to like him even less because now he acts like this. And, and I try to make it very, um, very quick and very contemporary. I try to lean into the universal nature of this story. 
the universal connectedness that we can feel to these characters. If we can form a connection with Shakespeare, then we can get a ton out of his stories. Okay. If we can't form a connection, then we struggle to get anything out of his stories. So I try to have the super fast summary set students up for success in finding a point of connection. Even if the plot seems ridiculous to you, and even if you dislike most of the characters, there's somebody there that you know. There's somebody there that you recognize, or you see parts of yourself in three characters. And you start going, hmm, if that were me, oh golly, I think I would have done that. Oh, yikes, you know? So if you can find a point of connection, the super fast summary helps you find a point of connection. Then I say, okay, we're gonna focus in on this for this reading of the play. Now, I do this in all of the literature guides that I've written for sevensistershomeschool.com. I have found it to be overwhelming to try to analyze everything about a story, about a book, the first time you read it. Just overload, it's too much. So instead I pick out two or three really good, important things and say, okay, this time through, we're gonna focus on this. There's lots of other great stuff to get out of this. You can read it again sometime and look for some of those other things, but let's not kill it. Let's not kill the story, right? So same here. I give two or three focus points and say, okay, this time through this play, here's what we're watching for. Here's what we're going to give special attention to. And then I send you to watch a good production of the play before you read it. Before you read it. And this is where some students are like, eh, there are a few who don't like doing it that order. If you have a student who really, really does not want to watch the play first, that's okay. They can read it first. There's not one right way to use one of my Shakespeare literature guides. But um, for a lot of students, watching it first, having read the super fast summary. So, you know, there's all kinds of spoilers. I mean, there aren't going to be any major surprises because the super fast summary has told you the whole thing, but it makes it so much easier to track along with the Elizabethan dialogue. So if you already understand what's happening in the story, you understand who the basic character relationships, how they play out, all that stuff, then it's nowhere near as difficult to track along with the major points of the plot as it unfolds when you watch your performance. So you're not getting every detail. You're not getting every line. You're not getting punched with all the beauty of the language and all the richness and all the power in it. You're kind of doing an overview, but you're also not getting lost in the process. That super fast summary has set you up for success here. You have found enough to connect to in characters or relationships or circumstances that kind of grabbed you when you read the super fast summary, that now that's what you're looking for. And each time it comes up, it grabs you a little bit more and you've got this connection now going on with the story. So you watch a production. There are so many good productions online for free on YouTube because there are so many universities and there are so many Shakespeare festivals around the world that put on wonderful performances and make them available to us via video. So it's great if you can go to a theater and sit in the seats in the, uh, the live production is the best for sure, but you can definitely find a well done videoed production to watch. So you watch it and you don't answer any questions while you're going along. You just let the play wash over you. You just let the characters and the, the scenery and the, the way it's been staged and the setting that the director chose and all that kind of stuff. You just let it wash over you. You listen to the dialogue and you don't understand every bit of it. And that's okay. But you connect where you connect. You let it be what it is and you find your personal connection points in it. Once that is all done, then you read the play. 
and you read it with your study guide next to you and you answer some questions. And the questions are designed to help you track looking for those two or three primary points that we're gonna use for literary analysis in this reading of the play. Okay, so the questions are not tons of comprehension. So what happened then? You know all that from the super fast summary. So the questions are not asking you that stuff, but they're helping you zone in and focus in on those literary elements and devices, those pieces of excellent storytelling and excellent character creation that are our focal points for this encounter with the play. And once your questions are all finished with, there is a section that then touches on vocabulary, that then touches on the Elizabethan English. We save it for last. Most Shakespeare material that I have found for curriculum for high schoolers starts with vocabulary. And I think it, I think it puts students off right at the starting gate. I think they feel like, really, I'm going to have to decode an entire play. I'm going to have to translate an entire play. Wait until you've encountered the characters. Wait until you've connected with them. Wait until you've experienced both the production and the reading of the script. And then let's dig into a little bit of the language because it's pretty awesome. So it's really cool. And it's like nothing else that you're doing on a daily basis. So let's stretch a little bit. Let's do this, but not too much, not overkill, not enough for anybody to really get frustrated. Just enough for you to go, ha, huh, I did a thing. Yay me. And then I have suggestions for writing in response to this play, to the three focal, two or three focal points that we had, to the characters, to the relationships, to the points at which the student quite possibly connected with the play, with the playwright, and ask them to write in response. Sometimes just a paragraph, sometimes three paragraphs, sometimes a five paragraph essay, but for the most part, just a paragraph, a well thought out paragraph responding to a question that points us back to those three points of focus. So in doing this, you could easily do this over three to four weeks. You could do it for most students in two weeks. Um, it would be a, a pretty busy two weeks, but it's definitely doable. So if you're just trying to add one play in per year, easy peasy, right? There's enough space for that. And you're doing this in such a guided fashion that it doesn't really put anything on you as the parent to prepare for this, to plan for it. Okay. Even if you're using one of the ELA bundles from seven sisters and you've got your eight study guides and your cinema studies guides laid out for over the course of the year, it would not be overload to add three weeks of Shakespeare in at some point, or to just pull out one of the cinema, cinema studies guides that would normally have taken two weeks and instead put in Shakespeare for two or three weeks. It's not hard at all to adapt even our comprehensive one-year ELA bundle to make a spot for Shakespeare. So my encouragement to you is make a spot for Shakespeare in your homeschool high school. Whether you feel excited at the prospect or whether you feel like, oh, I guess we should, if you try it, I think you'll be glad you did. I think your student will be glad that you did. Even if they're a little grumbly at points early in the process, these Shakespeare guides from Seven Sisters, they make Shakespeare's work accessible. They encourage students to connect with the universal nature of excellent storytelling and rich characters and ideas that are simply human ideas. Give it a try. 
you might be surprised that it's not dry at all and that it is something really empowering for your teens in their homeschool high school. So thank you for letting me share these ideas with you. If you have had great experiences with Shakespeare, if you've had terrible experiences with Shakespeare, I'd love to hear your stories. In particular, our Facebook group, Seven Sisters Homeschool, has a lot of wonderful organic activity, people sharing ideas, things that have worked well in their homeschool, things that have been a real challenge, and their own personal experiences with different uh, subject areas and such. So if you've got something about Shakespeare that might be helpful, interesting, amusing, whatever, to share with, with others who are on the homeschool journey, just like you are, oh, please join the conversation. We do well when we hear each other's stories and when we learn from each other along the way. So thank you for being here today with me to learn a little bit about Shakespeare along the way. And I hope that you will join us here again for future episodes of the Homeschool High School Podcast from sevensistershomeschool.com and brought to you by the Ultimate Homeschool Podcast Network.